Well, good morning. Hey, why don't you grab your Bibles, if you have them with you. And uh, if you don't, there should be Bibles scattered in the pew back in front of you. And uh, why don't you grab those, and uh, you can begin by turning... uh, to the New Testament book of Titus. Uh, this morning we are transitioning out of uh, our sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew to our summer sermon series entitled Ask the Pastor. You may have noticed that there's a little box in the foyer that is for questions, and we've gotten lots of good questions. Keep them coming. I appreciate that. This morning we're beginning in week one with question one. So we're really going to be jumping throughout the Bible. Uh, we'll be some in the New Testament, a little bit in the Old Testament. So just sort of keep up as you can. I'll try to uh, keep up with you if you just want to look at the screen behind me. Most of the text should be there. We'll begin in the book of Titus and then jump into Ephesians and we'll go all throughout um, the Bible as we answer our first question of the week. So I'm going to ask that you pray with me one more time and then we'll begin our sermon. So would you do that with me? Father, uh, thank you for just the the weeks that we've enjoyed together in the Gospel of Matthew. We anticipate uh, returning to it once again as we continue to learn what it means to be your follower. But for this summertime, as we sort of take a break from Matthew, it is good for us to ponder questions that you have set on our hearts and on our minds. Lord, you have made us in your image, and you have made us as intelligent thinking beings, and you have made us inquisitive. And Lord, we are grateful for that. And Father, particularly, I'm grateful for the wonderful questions that we uh, have received thus far and those that we will continue to receive. Wonderful questions. And Lord, we uh, turn not to the world, we turn not to man to answer those questions, but we turn to you. And we turn to your revealed and written and preserved, uh, inspired and authoritative word. And so Father, we pray as we ponder these questions together that you would speak clearly, not uh, that they would be my words, but that they would be your words, and that it would be abundantly clear that the answers to our questions uh, would come from you and would come from your word. We pray it in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and God's people said, Amen. Well, many of you likely have seen uh, the original movie, God is Not Dead. Of course, there's a God's Not Dead. Two, but I'm referring to the first one. Now, if you haven't seen it, uh, basically it's about a student who is a first-year student in college, and he is in a philosophy class. Now, his philosophy professor, uh, by the name of Dr. Radisson, uh, is an atheist. And so as he begins sort of day one, lecture one, he uh, requires his students to get out a piece of paper and to write out, God is dead, as a of statement declaring that God is dead. Well, this particular student, Wheaton, is a Christian, and so he can't do that. He refuses to do that, and so uh, in the course of the movie, the professor challenges him to a series of sort of confrontational debates, if you will, in the classroom as they debate whether God is dead or not. Now, I want to show you a scene from that movie towards the end of the movie. So if you haven't seen the movie, Uh, Cover your eyes and close your ears, right? Spoiler alert, right? This is the end of the movie as Dr. Radisson suffers a, a fatal car accident and just happens to encounter a pastor along the way. So let's see what happens. Oh, 
his, his ribs are crushed. His lungs are filling with blood. He doesn't have more. Are you sure? Yeah. Don't move. I can't die. I'm not ready. Do you know Jesus? I'm an atheist. I believe it's God's mercy that brought me here right now. I'm dying. What is, how can you call that mercy? Because that car could have killed you instantly. And I'm sure right now you probably wish that it did. But I'm here to tell you that it's a gift. Because a God that you don't believe in has given you another chance. Another chance to change your final answer. I, I want to die. I'm so scared. If any consolation, so is Jesus. He's so scared he sweat blood. He asked the Father if it could be removed from him. But the answer was no. He says no a lot. He gives us the answer we'd ask for if we knew what he knows. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts are higher than your thoughts, says the Lord. Exactly. So the question is, stay with me. Stay with me. Are you willing to put your faith in Jesus Christ? Are you willing to take that chance? Yes. God is willing to forgive you of your sins. All of them. If you accept his son and ask him into your life, that's all you have to do is just accept his son. Accept his love and receive his forgiveness right now. Do you accept him? As Lord and Savior. Yes, I. I it's all right. In a few minutes, you're going to know more about God than I do, or anybody else here does. It's okay. It's okay. Well, in case you haven't seen the movie, I'm sorry, but you see what happens towards the end. But uh, to begin with, uh, we start with a clip from God's Not Dead, because in it we find an answer to the question that is behind me. So question number one that was submitted by one of you, I appreciate it, great question, it reads this way, when is my last chance to get into heaven? And then sort of a secondary question. Can I be an atheist all my life, and then on my deathbed, confess to the Lord that He is my Savior, and get in? Thank you, whoever wrote that. I hope you're out there, because it's a great question, and week one is for you. Now, clearly, the producers and the writers of this particular movie have an answer to your question. And what is their answer? Yes. <laughs> right. The answer 
answer is yes. However, we are really not concerned about what a movie says about this particular question. We are more concerned about what God says about this particular question. So we are going to mine the depths of the scriptures to answer this question. When is my last chance to get in heaven? Can I be an atheist and have a deathbed conversion? Today, I want us to see three reasons from the Bible as to why the answer to this question is yes. Why the answer is yes. So I believe the Bible agrees with the producers of this this particular movie. And I want to share with you three reasons as to why the answer is yes. Why one could be an atheist or simply sort of reject Christ all their life, put off trusting in Him as their Savior, and then on their deathbed confess that Jesus is Savior and Lord, genuinely repent of their sins, trust in Him, and be saved and go to heaven. Three reasons why the answer is yes. However, to close our sermon, I want to see three additional reasons, three additional biblical reasons that though though this is true, why one should not wait until the moment of death to turn to Christ. So can you? Yes. Three reasons why. Three reasons why. Okay, so let's begin with reason number one, uh, why a person can turn to Christ on their deathbed. And it is because, number one, salvation is by grace alone. It's because we are saved, we get into heaven by the grace of God alone, not by any merit, not by any works, not by any good uh, or meritorious deed that we can do. See, one of the chief reasons why we struggle with the idea of a deathbed conversion is because we don't understand or fully grasp that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from any merit alone. So I want to illustrate this with a simple story. Illustrate this with a story. By his own admission, Joe was not a religious man. In fact, he, he never went to church. He lived a pretty wild life. He drank too much. He cursed a lot. He gambled quite a bit of his savings away. And he was not above lying or cheating to suit his needs. Now, he thought that Christians were sort of missing out, right? They're just missing out on all the fun. He never really thought about God. That is, until recently. Because Joe had intended to retire and spend his days on the lake fishing in his brand new boat. However, he went to the doctor. He had been having some stomach trouble. And long story short, the report was not good. It was cancer. It had spread to several organs. And and the doctor said there was really not much they could do. He, in fact, had six months or less to live. Thankfully, Joe had a nephew And that nephew loved him. And that nephew was a Christian. And that nephew shared with his pastor about Uncle Joe. And that pastor visited Joe in the hospital. And he began to share with Joe the gospel. Now Joe came to the realization that he had lived a selfish life. That he had lived a a sinful life. He knew that if he died, he would then face the judgment of God. And as the pastor shared with him that Jesus Christ died on the cross for his sins to pay the penalty that he deserved and that he could receive the free gift of eternal life simply through faith in Jesus Christ, Joe prayed and he received Christ as his Savior. And uh, within a matter of weeks, Joe passed away. Now friends, if you are listening to that particular story, and it just doesn't sit well with you, it doesn't go well with you, it may be 
because you wrongly cling to the notion that somehow salvation is linked with what we do, with our uh, good works. See, we may think in our minds, you know, that's just not fair. Like, he lived a sinful life for himself, doing what he wanted. And at the end, he turns to Christ. At the end, he sort of gets off the hook all the while. I've been living a, a good life all of this time, friends. If you think that way, it reveals that you don't understand the gospel. It reveals that you don't understand grace. And you don't cherish the grace of God. You don't rejoice in it. Because God saved. Joe, the same way that he saves us, on the same basis that he saved us. The Bible repeatedly proclaims that we are saved simply by the grace of God, not by any good work. For instance, Titus chapter 3, verse 5, Paul writes that, that he, referring to God, saved us, not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. A well-known verse, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace that you've been saved, it's through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can be saved. Friends, the answer is yes, because we are saved not by living a good life, not by doing good things, but by the simple grace of God. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 20, you can turn there if you like, I'm just going to refer to a few verses. In Matthew 20, Jesus tells us a parable. And it's a parable that is instructive to answer this particular question. It it tells us that regardless of how long a Christian has been saved and has been laboring for God, God has the right to offer that same salvation to anyone and to everyone he chooses. See, in the parable... Uh, it's the parable of, of, the, of, of workers in a vineyard, right? So there is a vineyard owner, and he goes early in the morning, right, at, 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 the, at the dawn of day, and he hires some workers uh, to work for him. And then he later goes back at 9 a.m., and then at noon, and then at 3, and then at 5, and he says, he hires more workers, and he, he says, I'm just going to pay you a fair wage. And so all of these workers have been working. Now, of course, quitting time comes, and in the evening, the landowner uh, pays each of the laborer. Uh, laborers, but, but what does he do? He pays them all the same wage. So the person who's been working all day gets paid the same thing as the, the, the person who's been working an hour. Now, how do you think that goes over uh, with the, the people who have been working throughout the heat of the day? Are they pleased with that? Well, of course not, right? And so the first people grumble, and they say in verse 12, these who were hired last worked Only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. And in the parable, the owner responds by saying these words, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius, one day's work, one day's pay? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who has hired last the same as I gave you. And he says this, Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? Are you envious because I am gracious? Beloved, for those of us who think it's not fair for God to save a sinner in their last moment and to give him or her the same salvation that he gave us because we, in Jesus' words, have have borne the burden of the work, so to speak. We've lived for Christ all of our life. God says to me and God says to you, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own gift of salvation? Of course he does. So, so yes, can you have a deathbed repentance? Absolutely, because we are saved by God's grace. But there's a second reason. You can turn to Christ and repent 
on your deathbed because, number two, God gives us until the moment of death. Because God gives us until the very moment of death to trust in his son. How do we know that? Take a look at Hebrews chapter 9. If you have your Bibles open, this is a good one to turn to. Hebrews chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses 27 and 28. Notice the order of the things that are about to be said. Verse 27. The author of Hebrews writes this. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sanctified once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Now, notice verse 27. The order is vitally important. How many times do we die physically? What is the author of Hebrews says? One time, right? We die one time. And then, after we die, what happens? Verse 27. Just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face what? Judgment, right? And so, vitally important is our understanding that God gives us until the very moment of death to turn and to trust in Him. He graciously suspends our final sentencing, if you will, until we have passed from this life into the next. Maybe you've done this as a parent. Maybe you've seen parents use this technique. Johnny, pick up your room. I'll give you into the count of what? It's always three. I don't know. Why is it three? How about not two or one or five? Whatever. Johnny, I'll give you to pick up your room until the count of three. One. Two. Little Johnny does what? Depending upon his disposition, he might start to sort of do something, right? But, But if you get to three, then what? Time's up. There is judgment. Now, some parents are uh, maybe more lenient than others, so they may say three, two, one and three quarters, one and one half, one and one quarter, right? They may extend that a little bit, but eventually, judgment is coming. Friends, God has a long countdown. God has a long countdown for us. It lasts all the way until the very moment of our death. He eagerly awaits for us to turn and repent and to trust in His Son. He longs for us to do so. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 reads this way, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, that is, to, to send Jesus Christ back to the earth, as some understand slowness. Instead, Peter writes, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Friends, how many people does God want to perish? What is the answer? None, right? Anyone. How many people does God want to come to repentance? Everyone, right? All people. In Luke 15, we get three parables in a row from the teachings of Christ, and they all have the same point to them, right? The first is the parable of the lost sheep. The second is the parable of the lost coin. And the third is the parable of the lost son, better known as the prodigal son, right? Each, each of those parables, the point is the same. It's that God eagerly waits for a sinner to turn back to him and rejoices when that happens, right? God likens a shepherd who is looking for how many lost sheep? Remember? One, right? And, and he likens, uh, Jesus likens his father to a wife who's, who's lost one single coin, right? And the shepherd goes 
searching after the sheep. And the wife goes searching after the coin. And what happens when they find them? Verse 7, Jesus says, I tell you in the same way that there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. He reiterates it in verse 10. In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Friends, God is eager. He's waiting. And He gives us until the very last moment of our lives. And so, yes, can you wait? Can you turn to Christ on your deathbed? Yes, you can, because you are saved by God's grace, not by anything you could do. And yes, you can, because He waits. He gives you until the moment of your death. But there's a third reason. And it's because we have a biblical example of this, do we not? What is it? I think you probably all know. Yeah, The thief on the cross, right? And so that's our third reason why. Yes, because we have seen it happen. There is one biblical example of it, and it's found in Luke chapter 23, the thief on the cross. Now, to help us illustrate this, we've arranged for a little skit. Now, you know that there were two thieves on the cross. One repented and turned to Jesus as Savior, and the other rejected him. One believed and the other didn't. And so we're going to have a little skit to help us uh, bring this to light.
Thanks, guys. So we see in our little skit the very two different responses with the two thieves on the cross. Let's take a look at the text. Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Verse 39, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, Today, you will be with me in paradise. Well, this section could really be a whole sermon in and of itself, but it's sufficient to say that this is sort of the the bedside conversion par excellence, right? It is the chief example, if you will. See, the thief could not merit salvation. He could not prove he was saved by any sort of later fruit after his conversion. He had little life yet to live. He had nothing to bring to Christ. He could not promise Christ any change. But he had a humble faith. He had a humble faith that Jesus really was the Jewish Messiah. And he really would rule in Israel in his kingdom. Of course, contrast this with the other thief, right? One rejected him, the other believed. And friends, their responses are the response of every single human being on the earth. You either trust in him as your Savior or you reject him as your Savior. John Calvin once commented on the, on the man, the, the thief who had faith in Jesus. He remarks that since the creation of the world, there's really been not a more remarkable or striking example of faith. Than this particular thief. He said, and I quote, He adored Christ as a king while on the gallows. He celebrated his kingdom in the midst of shocking and worse than revolting abasement. He declared him, when dying, to be the author of life. He he beheld life in death, exultation in ruin, glory in shame, victory in destruction, and a kingdom in bondage. This man had an incredible faith in Jesus Christ. And because he expressed that faith, though he was about to die, what did Jesus say? In a few years you'll be with me in paradise? What? Today, right? Today you will be with me in paradise. So the answer, my friends, to the question, can I be an atheist all my life and then on my deathbed confess that Jesus is Lord? And get in. Friends, the answer is yes. Because salvation is by grace. Because God gives us until the moment of our death to repent. And because there is a biblical example of doing so. However, our sermon is not yet done. Because the answer is yes, there is a but to it. Right? Yes, you can. But. But. You can wait until your deathbed. But don't wait until your deathbed. Three reasons why. Number one, because you and I are not promised tomorrow. Do not wait until your deathbed to convert and to trust in Jesus Christ. Because, friends, you don't know if you will be alive tomorrow. I don't know if I will be alive an hour from now. So do not wait. The faulty assumption behind this deathbed approach is that you and I don't know when moment is. I don't know when I'm going to die. You don't know when you're going to die. And not only that, but we don't know the circumstances surrounding our death, 
right? Are we going to die peacefully? Or are we going to die violently? Are we going to die in a coma? Or are we going to die fully awake and aware? I don't know. You don't know. So do not put it off. In addition, will you be fully alert? Will you be conscious? To make, will you be able to make that decision at your death, even if you want to? You might, but you might not. It is a prideful thing. It is a prideful thing to say, we are going to put this decision off. Proverbs 27.1 Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. James tackles this faulty assumption in James chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. He says, Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into this city or that, and we'll spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Verse 14, why you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Friends, don't put off the decision because you are not promised tomorrow. Thomas Guthrie, a well-known 17th century Scottish preacher, wrote this very astute observation about the instance of the, of the bedside conversion, if you will, of the thief on the cross. He writes this. It is a wonderful quote. It cannot be too often or too loudly or too solemnly repeated that in the Bible, which ranges over a period of 4,000 years, records but one Instance of a deathbed conversion. And then he writes these very powerful words one that none may despair, and but one that none may presume. What is he saying? Yes, we have one example because it can happen. Don't despair. But we have one so that you don't presume. Don't presume that that is going to be you, because it likely won't. Friends, don't put it off because you are not promised tomorrow. But secondly, don't put it off because sin hardens our hearts towards God. You may be thinking, I will wait until I'm 30 to trust in Christ. Friends, when I was 16 years old, before I trusted in Christ, that's what I thought. I know I need to do that. I'm going to do it later. That's what I thought. Maybe you're thinking that. You may be thinking, I'm going to do it when I'm 80, I'm going to do it when I'm 90, and so on and so forth. Friends, um, we and you will not be more likely to repent and turn to Christ in faith after a lifetime of saying no to the Holy Spirit's conviction. You will be far less likely to do so. And here's the reason why. It's because sin and rejecting God's tug at our hearts to place our faith in Christ has a hardening effect on our heart. Have you ever played with Play-Doh before? Probably when you were younger. If you have kids, young kids, you probably have Play-Doh in your house. One of the things that we hate most about Play-Doh is what happens if it's left out. It's hard, right? The kids play with it and it's soft. You can, you can move it around, right? It does what you want. But if you leave it out a day, you, what? It's like a rock, right? You can throw it at someone and hurt them if you want. Don't, don't do that. But you could. It's hard because what happens? In time, it gets hard. Friends, The same is true of our hearts, right? In time, as we reject God and His Word, as we reject the Holy Spirit saying, you need to trust in Christ and be born again, our heart, which is soft and malleable, it becomes hard. 
The author of Hebrews, once again in chapter 3, writes this. He says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. How does one get to that place? How do you get to the place where you are, have a sinful and an unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God? Well, he tells us in, in the next verse, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. You see that? The deceitfulness of the sin hardens our hearts. Friend, saying no to God frequently throughout your life most likely will result in you being unable to say yes, undesirable to say yes to Christ when death comes knocking at your door. You may not be interested in Christ at all. So the question was posed this way, right? Is my last chance to get into heaven? And then the secondary question goes like this. Can I be an atheist all my life and then on my deathbed convert, right? Well, since the question mentioned an atheist, I thought I might use a a famous atheist of our day as an illustration, as an example. And I'm speaking of recently departed, that is, he died, Christopher Hitchens. Maybe you're familiar with him or his books. Very influential atheist in our day. Brilliant man. A Christian author, pastor, blogger by the name of Justin Taylor, he writes about Christopher Hitchens and his death. So first I'll I'll quote Justin Taylor, and then Justin Taylor will quote the dead atheist. Okay, Follow along. Justin Taylor writes, He was a brilliant and entertaining man. He was enormously gifted, and in his final years he took those gifts and used them to mock God. He, He saw the choice before him and rejected the Savior. He writes, Hitchens suspected that there would be rumors of a deathbed conversion. But even more, he feared that he might actually call out to God, that is, on his deathbed. Speaking perhaps truer than he knew, he sought to give a preemptive strike against such a possibility, explaining that if it happened... it would not be the real Christopher Hitchens doing such a thing. Now, here's, here's the man in his own words. Even if my voice goes before I do, I shall continue to write polemics, arguments, against religious delusions, at least until it's hello darkness, my old friend. In which case, why not cancer of the brain? And then he writes these words. As a terrified, half-aware imbecile, I might even scream for a priest at the close of business, though I hereby state, while I am still lucid, that the entity, thus humiliating himself, would not in fact be me. Bear this in mind, in case of any rumors or fabrications. Friends, does that sound like a man who's going to turn to Christ on his deathbed? Absolutely not. It's because sin hardens our hearts towards God. And there's a third reason why we should not wait. It's because the scriptures say in at least three places that today is the day of salvation. That is, don't put off making a decision for Christ. A farm boy accidentally had overturned a wagon load of corn in the road. 
And the farmer who lived nearby came to help and to see what had happened. Hey, Willis, he said, forget your troubles for a while. Come on over and have dinner with us. I'll help you get the wagon up. Well, that's mighty nice of you, Willis said, but I don't think that Paul would like me to do that. Oh, come on, son, he said. Dinner is ready. Well, okay, the boy agreed. But Paul won't like it. Well, after a hearty dinner and full stomachs, uh, Willis thanked his host. I feel a lot better now. But I just know that Paul, he's going to be real upset. Don't be foolish, exclaimed the neighbor. By the way, where is your dad? The young man said. Well, he's under the wagon. Yep, Paul's going to be upset. Friends, time and time again, the Bible urges us, don't leave Paul under the wagon, right? Don't do it. Don't put off a decision to follow or obey Christ, especially. Don't put off the decision to repent and to trust in Jesus. Isaiah 55, 6 urges everyone to to seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him when he is near. Hebrews 3, verse 7, a little earlier, says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And then Paul in 2 Corinthians 6 quotes both of these scriptures. He says this, For he says, uh, excuse me, in verse 1, as, as God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, In the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Friends, by putting off a decision to trust in Christ, you not only lose the immediate benefits of a personal relationship with God and being born again and being transformed, but you risk uh, an entire um, eternity of being separated from Him. Do not procrastinate. Come to Christ today. Today, today is the day of salvation. The great British pastor, Charles Spurgeon, in closing, once wrote about deathbed conversions. He said this, and I quote, Ah, dear friends, it has been my lot to stand by many a deathbed and to to see many such a repentance as this. I have seen the man, when worn to a skeleton, sustained by pillows in his bed, and he said, when I have talked to him of the coming judgment, Sir, I feel I have been guilty, and Christ is good. I trust in him. And I have said within myself, I believe the man's soul is safe. But then he writes these words, But I have always come away with the melancholy reflection that I had no proof of it beyond his own words. And then he says this, You know that great fact that a physician in England once kept a record of a thousand persons who were dying, of whom he thought were penitents, that sort of deathbed conversions. He wrote their names down in a book as those who, if they died, would go to heaven. However, they did not die. They lived. And he said that out of the whole thousand, he had not three persons who turned out well afterwards. That is, they returned back to their sins and, in his words, were as bad as ever. And then Spurgeon writes this, Ah, dear friends, I hope none of you will have such a deathbed repentance as that. I hope your or your parents will not have to stand by your bedside and, and go away saying, poor fellow, I hope he is saved. But alas, deathbed repentances are such flimsy things, such poor, such trivial grounds of hope that I am afraid, after all, his soul may be lost. Friends, do not wait. Do not put your eternity on such a flimsy thing. Don't place your hopes of heaven 
on such a trivial grounds of hope. Today is the day of salvation. Trust in Christ today and settle the matter. If you want to do that, you can pray with me now and we're going to close. So let's pray. Father, if there's a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, and they are here and they um, know that in their heart of hearts that they have not repented and trusted in Christ. Father, I remember being in their shoes as a young man that I understood the gospel, that I knew that you loved me and cared for me, but that I have sinned against you, and because of that, that I deserved hell for all eternity, and that I knew that I simply had to receive this gift of salvation and repent of my sin and living for myself and trust in your Son as my Savior and my Lord, and I put it off, and I put it off. And I put it off until I could no longer. Father, if there is a man or a woman, a boy or a girl here, and your Holy Spirit is knocking on the door of their hearts, oh Lord, save them now. And if that is you, friends, simply pray with me now in your heart of hearts to receive Christ. God, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner and that you have made me to know you, but my sin and rebellion have caused me to be separated from you. I have been putting off trusting Christ. But now I turn and I trust in Christ. And in Christ alone, I don't deserve it. I can't earn it. But he has lived a perfect life for me. He's died in my place and for my sins. And he, I believe he rose again to offer me both new and eternal life. And I trust in him. Friend, if that is you and you have trusted in Christ, then come talk to me. Talk to a friend. Talk to a neighbor. Because today for you is the day of salvation. Father, for those of us who have done this, Lord, may we rejoice in your goodness and your grace in the gospel that says that we come to you not by our own works, but by your grace and by your mercy. And may we know the um, eternal uh, uh, significance of not only our decision, but the decisions that others in our life need to make. Oh God, we are grateful that you have given us one example of a deathbed conversion because you are merciful. But God, you've given us only one because we shall not presume. Lord, thank you for your goodness and grace and for this time today. And we ask it in Christ's name. And God's people said, amen. Have a great Father's Day, guys. See you next time.